I'm Aaron Sagers, and this is Talking Strange. Aloha, spooky nerds, and welcome to Talking Strange, a paranormal pop culture show with the Den of Geek Network, where we discuss the entertainment of the unexplained. I am your host, Aaron Sagers, journalist, author, researcher of all things weird. Currently, I can be seen on Travel Channel and Discovery Plus's Paranormal Caught on Camera. And today we have a big show because Expedition Bigfoot is coming back for season three on March 20th. Now, the new season kicks off with a special new evidence pre-show, which looks back on Expedition Bigfoot's journey. And that includes a surprising conversation with renowned primatologist Dr. Jane Goodall. That launches into the season premiere. Now this season there are 16 one-hour episodes including the pre and post season specials that will recap all of the evidence collected. This will premiere 9 p.m. on Travel Channel and premiering same day on Discovery Plus. So what is in store this season for Expedition Bigfoot. So glad you asked. You didn't ask, but I'm assuming you asked. You're wondering. A year after devastating wildfires forced them to evacuate the Olympic Peninsula, the Expedition Bigfoot team returned to Washington State, encouraged by, let's face it, an incredible discovery from the previous expedition. The team devises a new plan to rouse a Bigfoot from hiding and prove These elusive creatures are not a myth, but a reality. Now, with that said, let's go ahead and bring in the team. He is an acclaimed actor, a producer, as well as creator and host of the popular podcast, podcast I love listening to, Bigfoot Collectors Club. And he has been obsessed with Bigfoot ever since he was a young boy. So here is Bryce Johnson. Hey there, Bryce. Hey. How's it and, going, Aaron? Hey, yep. thanks for uh, thanks for joining today. And My pleasure. We also have a world-renowned primatologist. She is a Fulbright Scholar, a National Science Foundation Fellow. A, I, I've heard her called a female Indiana Jones, but really she's just like an Indiana Jones. She's just a kick-ass Indiana Jones who co-discovered the world's smallest primate, a brand new species to science. And we're bringing in Dr. Maria Mayer. Hello. Hey, thanks for joining. Good to see you again. Nice to see you. He is an author of Footprints of a Legend and Bigfoot and the Tripwire. He's an event coordinator for the International Bigfoot Conference, and he is a skilled survivalist, a retired Army sergeant, and he spends his free time traveling the Pacific Northwest looking for evidence of Bigfoot. And here is Russell Russ Accord. Hey, buddy. Hey, guys. How you doing? Thanks hey. for joining. Russ. Team. And last but not least, he is a globally recognized figure in the world of the paranormal. Bigfoot, UFOs, the whole shebang. He is an independent researcher, screenwriter, author of the critically acclaimed and best-selling book, Monsterland, Encounters with Bigfoot, UFOs, with UFOs, Bigfoot, and Orange Orbs. And that details the history and connection between various phenomena and highlights his experience in the research area called Monsterland in central Massachusetts. And he's a buddy of mine from uh, Paranormal Caught on Camera. 
And here he is. Hey, Ronnie. Hey, man. Yeah. All right. I'm great. And we are all here. And I'm, I'm going to just move myself over so you guys get the... Uh, there you go. Now I'm in the middle. I feel like I'm I'm like the the fifth member of the team. Although I think that's really uh, your your camera guys, your camera folks. But so let's. I, I kind of teased last season, and I want to start there and talk a little bit about this eDNA sample from Kentucky and why it was so important and so noteworthy to your investigations. And, uh, Murray, why don't you begin with that? Why don't you tell us why that was so important and what, what it really led to? Sure. So, you know, one of the challenges, as you and everyone else listening knows, is that we have not been able to uh, find any sort of evidence that is tangible and irrefutable that could be presented to the scientific community in order to recognize Bigfoot as a species that is out there and that exists, uh, regardless of the tens of thousands of witnesses that come forward. And so that is obviously one of the things that we strive for when we're out in the field. And when we come upon sites that are of interest, that show any sort of unusual activity, uh, in this case, we were in Kentucky and we, Ronnie and I had come upon this, uh, what looked like a made structure right, with intent behind it, then you have to hope that whatever made that structure would leave some DNA behind. Because of course, as as we move through, right, any living thing moves through, you're shedding DNA. And so what we did was, and this is something that is used in conservation biology a lot, is we collected a soil sample to look for eDNA. Um, and we do this in, at, across the investigation, but at this particular point, uh, the results were really surprising. I'm not just to me and the team, but to the geneticist uh, that was actually looking at this. I mean, she was really shocked when she saw that we had found something with chimpanzee eDNA. I mean, a very specific species of of chimp. And as everyone knows, there are no chimps running around the woods of Kentucky. So this was a really intriguing find. Um, as you also know with science, you have to be able to replicate these findings. And so that is something that I'm you know, very careful of not l- jumping to the conclusion, right? So we, there's still a lot of stuff that we need to do, but the truth is, is that that was a really surprising and cool find out there. Yeah, and along with it, you mentioned it, but there were these rock pilings, this structure of sorts. Now, when it comes to the, expl- the the search for Bigfoot for Sasquatch, we hear a lot about these these uh, either formations, these pilings, and whatnot. Now, Ronnie, you with regards to these rock pilings, you kind of had an interesting idea because these these structures, if it's maybe a, a bunch of wood of of wood or logs or twigs or whatever, some people might jump to the conclusion that these could be meant for shelter, but that may not be where your mind was going and certainly not with the rocks being piled as they were. So what is your theory on the purpose of these rock pilings? You know, it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of different theories. Are they marking uh, a position where, you know, this is like a boundary or property marker, or is this, um, almost like a, a gravestone uh, a nursery. So there's a lot of different 
theories out there. And I'm kind of, it's interesting because I'm not sure where it really falls, but when you see a structure that big, uh, it just seemed to be, have, it seemed to have some kind of purpose. It just didn't seem to be um, set up just for the heck of it. So I'm not quite sure, uh, but it just seems that they, they seem to be some kind of property marker at the, at the very least. What you, you, you used the word, correct me if I'm wrong, you used the word shrine. Yeah, like, you know, we, we see um, tombstones. We see these really kind of elaborate setups to designate this is a, a special place, you know, seen a cross on the side of the road. So it could be an indication of that. It could be one of those things of why we're not finding bones. Are they burying them? Are they doing something else where they're that smart? And um, so it's 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 to be, it remains to be unseen, you know, to be seen, so. And uh, we'll circle back a little bit to that in a bit as far as uh, uh, Dr. Jane Goodall's kind of thoughts on the disposal of bodies and the purpose behind that as well. But Russ, from your perspective, we know that this area was devastated by a fire. I, I, I think we could use the word devastated. There was definitely a destructive fire that came through this area. How did that impact the territory from an investigative standpoint? Because suddenly it seems like, is there just a lot less coverage for something to hide or, uh, yeah, how take it from there. How did the, the fire impact the actual territory and your investigation? You have a timeline. It basically gives you a timeline. So all the undergrowth is gone. All the, uh, the trees have been scarred and, and marked, but anything that you see as far as evidence on the ground that you can tell is actually evidence you have a timeline of it's happened from this date forward so that actually helps a little bit but there's a lot less coverage to to hide there's a there's less places to go where you feel comfortable being out in the open Mm -hmm. so you're pretty much pushing animals and wildlife into areas where there's a lot more rock formations a lot more heavy um like terrain to, to kind of navigate around without being seen. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of pushing them out of the open spaces into these these more clustered areas. You have the timeline to go from, it's it's actually pretty decent for research, even though it's devastating for, you know, just the, the plant growth. And, but just like the earth always does, it comes back, it grows, it regrows and comes back strong. Mm-hmm. So it, it has its ups and downs. Bryce, walk us through a little bit about where we pick up with season three. When, what was the, the, the span of time in between having to leave that area to when we return to the spot? And also just walk us through a little bit on this production because, you know, it was also shot amidst global events. <laughs> There's right. was some things going on. So where do we pick up and how did the season three production kind of roll out amidst the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, suffice, you know, suffice it to say there were a lot of obstacles, including the, the global pandemic, as well as uncontrollable forest fires. But, but look, you know, I think the fans are going to be so pleased because I know just coming through my social media, everybody wanted us to go back to Washington uh, because uh, like you said, we were picking up on so much activity in and around the lake, uh, you know, where Russell found that track, that footprint, uh, 
you know, there was just so much activity taking place there that to have to leave early was, well, to say the least, it was devastating. So um, we knew right when we had to evacuate the area that this is the place we wanted to come back to, to pick right up on the heels of our investigation. And that's exactly what we did. I mean, the location did not disappoint the second time around. How, how long of, uh, of a time was it between leaving and then coming back? I think it was just about less than a year, but approximately a year. Yeah. Uh, Maria, like with the, with these animals, with the animals in the wild, when you have something like a fire, does that potentially alter their behaviors? Maybe they're seeking out new territory. They have less food sources, less coverage. How does that impact how they behave? That's, I mean, you, you hit it, right? So I've, uh, I've worked in areas, for example, in Madagascar that are constantly being devastated by fires. And I've seen liter- animals literally singed heads running away, trying to escape these areas. And it takes a long time for them to repopulate it, depending on just how much devastation there is. And it has to do with precisely the things that you just mentioned, how much, how much habitat is left. Are there any food resources? So Animals, as we know, are incredibly adaptive, right? So they're going to respond to their immediate surroundings and they're going to act accordingly. And if we know anything, we know that animals need those three things, and that's food, water, and shelter. And fire has the potential of taking away two of those. Mm -hmm. And let me just say, uh, we have a comment here. Music Bug Jr. (laughs) says he has so many questions. Well, or, or she, lay them on us. Ask your questions, guys, and I will try to get to them. You guys do a really good job with the show about giving us a pretty detailed graphic on where each of you are in the during the investigation, during the expedition. But distance-wise, how give us a little bit of a sense about where you are, how many yards are uh, separated between you as you've kind of created this as you triangulate a territory and then create sort of a, a zone that you're really focusing in on. Uh, I don't know, Russ, if you want to take that a little bit, can you talk to us about sort of how far apart each of you are? We could be miles apart. Oh, really? Yeah. An entire hillside apart, somebody down in the valley, somebody on the, the hill above. Yeah. But oftentimes we find ourselves miles apart and communication sometimes gets a little bit more difficult at, the, at those points. But we always have a, I mean, you start the day off knowing where kind of the idea of where you expect to be heading. And that way you're not both dropping in on the same, you know, small area. Mm -hmm. But the idea was to cover a lot of distance and to gather as much evidence as we possibly could. And let me stick with you for another moment, Russ, because we see you in the ghillie suit and then we see you kind of taking shelter in these blinds from, I guess, I having not been in a war zone and not in the military, I can see the benefit of that when you're dealing with other humans. But when you're dealing with an animal, how do you account for the fact that you might still be giving off certain smells, your own, your own uh, scent? And how are you accounting for that as far as avoiding detection? I know that I'm going to get a comment from somebody out of this group about my scent being. Uh, I, I warned you about the dogs. Oh, it's okay. Look, this is a dog-friendly crew, oh, wow. okay? <laughs> oh my god. Um, 
regardless of how well we camouflage ourselves, <clears throat> put on a ghillie suit, get down in the trees, rub dirt on you. A lot of the, a lot of the uh, like bow hunters will do that. They'll actually get in in the dirt and rub it on their skin, and they'll leave their clothes hang out, you know, for days on end to where all the scent from washers, dryers, speed stick, dracar, cologne, hairspray, all of that, it comes off where you're in a natural environment. Dude, it's I swear it's okay. You could literally bring the dogs into the camera and I'll interview them for 45 minutes. That's how much I left off. <laughs> this, is, this is so unexpected. I'm so sorry. But no, it's okay. So I have I have a question for Russ. Russ, were you wearing Dracar while you were in the ghillie suit? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think I've ever gone a day without well, I wearing it. I discovered it years and years ago. <laughs> I, I think that that is the true paranormal uh, <laughs> evidence here that I now know who is still buying Dracar Noir. <laughs> and there's also the Turkish ripoff, Akthar Noir, which you get from the You know what? I'd, I'd better get free Dracar for life for plugging them on your show right now. <laughs> no, but seriously, Google it. You can save you know, a ton even, of money because I know you use that like what you look I, like. I, I think only if you manage to attract a Bigfoot. Yeah, <laughs> that there might be something to it. It's it's a pleasant smell. I have two choices: either I can smell like the field and be all nasty, or I can smell like Dracar. And I know well, that Maria doesn't the two as different. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, but legitimately, with the rest of you, is that something that you're taking into account? And I'm sure it is that we're we're looking for something that is elusive by nature, and yet the presence of humans upsets that that balance. And so, how does that throw off the search? Yeah, well, I'll t- I'll take this. I've always been under the assumption that whenever we enter a target zone or an area of interest, that our presence has already been made known. Even though we're a very small group, uh, you would have to suspect that if, in fact, these creatures do exist, then they are a master of that wooded domain and they can pick up our scent. They can spot us from miles away. So it's really just about us uh, going about our business, about our investigation and uh and as much as we can, habituating ourselves to that area so that these creatures can get interested in the work that we're doing and allow themselves to get closer to us so that we can capture amazing evidence. You know, I, I've never, you know, we can try and sneak in and be quiet, but still at the end of the day, uh, I think for me personally, I would have to assume that my presence has already been made known. But more importantly, Bryce, are you a master of a wooded domain? <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting there. Not not as much as these guys. I mean, uh, these guys are incredible. So to to answer short and simply, no. <laughs> Aaron, Aaron, to to Bryce's point, when you're trying to habituate animals that are rare and elusive, the last thing you want to do is actually be quiet. I mean, you want to get them used to your mm. presence there because that's the only way that animals start to become comfortable and start to sort of show themselves because you then become a part of that natural environment. Do you think, and Ronnie, maybe you can take this, but you guys do utilize, at least in the premiere episode, there's the the pre-show and then there's the pre and then the premiere episode, the, you make use of these drones, these agriculture drones. Talk us through a little bit about the use of those, but also tell me about accounting for any potential noises that they may make. I mean, I, I think, uh, Maria, you just kind of said that, but, you know, Ronnie, pick it up a little bit from there. Sure. 
Yeah, you know, with using the that particular drone, it's enormous, first off. And the idea is that when we're bringing in technology, you know, there's a lot of theories that Bigfoot can pick up on infrared light and can see trail cameras. So we kind of know that going along with, with us not being as quiet as we, we'd like to be at times, um, bringing all this tech in is going to get noticed. So that just plays a part where we're trying to, I think, take it up a notch each time to figure out what are things that we can do that are outside the box that we can deploy. And this was one of those those ideas that everyone was kind of like, let's let's do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, we it's have an opportunity on, on, on this show to push the boundaries and push the edges. And not only does that mean you know, pushing them with boots on the ground, but it comes, it means pushing them with technology uh, that's available, like using an agricultural drone to spread primate pheromone uh, throughout thousands of acres is something that's never been done before. Uh, and so we're really just trying to take advantage of, of using today's latest technology to, to help us gather evidence uh, of these creatures. So we always want to go bigger and better uh, with every opportunity that we can. Look, and for the record, we don't always all agree on these ideas. I'm just going to put that out there. Like, for example, this is not one that I was like really a part of in a sense, like saying, I really want to do this Um, because we have different ideas too about what this creature might, might be. And if Mm. I, if I am to look at what's been reported and take it at face value that this in fact is a closely related either hominid or primate like creature then we know that primates don't have a great sense of olfaction right we have a very reduced snout so we don't really smell in the same way that other animals use smell to attract mates and everything else i mean pheromones are obviously a really real thing but this was like a really different strategy that is not one that i would have employed but like the guys mentioned it's about trying new things because at the end of the day nothing that's been tried so far has really worked so you got to keep yeah. pushing the envelope i guess with that uh, that may have answered my next question but i was wondering Sorry. so no no please because you do you spray these these pheromones throughout this territory and i guess my question was that's an interesting idea i've not seen that before but does that run the risk of overwhelming an environment with these pheromones like uh coding an area, this distribution of pheromones, does it alter the environment? Does it overwhelm the natural kind of scent of a, of a place? It dissipates almost instantly. Like seconds later, it just dissipates. Yeah. So it's not something, I mean, and this was something that the team consulted with me from the very start, like how would this impact the other wildlife in, in the area? And the fact is, is that it wouldn't, um, these are really So pheromones are very unique to both species and individuals. Uh, They don't give off uh, DNA, so it's not like going to contaminate an entire forest. And animals that aren't um, attuned to those chemical signals in that way aren't even going to pick up on it. And then most importantly, it does in fact just dissipate almost instantly. Yeah. Let me bring up a audience question in the very last episode of the season of last season, did you manage to retrieve the cameras before you had to leave due to the smoke? Whoever wants to take that. Yeah, sure. We did. We did uh, gather up most of our equipment, but we also left a few uh, trail cameras behind uh, to come back later. 
because uh, as soon as we exit a zone, we still like to have some some working equipment up and around uh, in case we can detect anything after we leave. So yeah, we did have some equipment and we did go back and get that. And uh, I think we re- might reveal a few things on the on the pre-show. So be sure to look for that. Yeah, actually, yeah, the follow-up question is what new technology do you have this season? Anything else that you can tease on the tech side? Yeah, I'll, t- I'll tell you what. This season is going to blow away uh, the fans and the viewers of this show because uh, the technology that we bring to bear uh, for scientific uh, investigation is, is, is incredible. And here's a little teaser, you know, for people who are familiar with the Patterson-Gimlin film footage, and and the site you know there's something really special that we were able to pull off this season so i'm really excited for viewers to see what that's all about oh wow okay and who hasn't heard of the patterson gimlin <laughs> footage at this i mean point? It, i mean at it. this point it's yeah <laughs> i think it's got to be one of the most viewed uh films of all time probably right behind the zabruder film so just about everybody on this planet uh has seen this film or knows someone who does uh it's really made the rounds or knows that at least the 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 form the silhouette that is is you know the decal across the world uh another question here is uh, fire is so devastating what are the Possibilities that a Bigfoot could have perished in the fires and is a charred carcass waiting to be discovered. I think the idea that that also ties to sort of the skeptic question of like, why aren't we finding Bigfoot bodies all over the place? And I and I I, I certainly know the answer, but I want to hear it from uh from an actual primatologist. <laughs> so why, why, why don't you I'll take, it, take that? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> uh, Dr. Mayor. So, uh, so that was one of the big questions I had, to be honest, going into all of this. And it was one of the questions that I brought up uh, during my interview with, uh, with Jane Goodall. And her response is that it is very possible that this is a species that is far more intelligent than we can possibly imagine where they are in fact, either burying uh, their bodies in a way that we cannot find. And the truth is with that response, there is this tendency for us humans to position ourselves sort of at that top of the, the food chain, the, the, you know, the, the, the hierarchy of intelligence in, in the animal kingdom. Um, but I think that I think that we know enough now to know that that's you know not the case, right? Like that there could very well be uh, creatures that are far more intelligent and far more sophisticated and far more adapted to living life in the woods uh, that we are just not privy to. That that Jane Goodall interview is just so impactful and striking because because of who she is but also the fact that she would sit down for expedition bigfoot for any show like this i'm not going to say how did it feel but i will ask do you do you feel as if the takeaway from this is that it adds legitimacy to not only your show but to this pursuit and I, I kind of want to get a, a reaction from each of you on this because it, it is such a giant to have appear on the on the series and um, and uh, Maria why don't you begin with that 
So I've, I've known Jane um, for, for a couple of decades now, and she in fact wrote the foreword to my book. And, you know, we've, we've been friends and colleagues, and I approached her about uh, having this conversation on Expedition Bigfoot because, uh, like me, Jane has always not only had a really open mind, but not afraid to go against uh, mainstream science. In fact, she had a lot of criticism early on in her career because she was naming chimps and that was unheard of. People just mm -hmm. use numbers to talk about these animals. And so she has that sort of that, that fire and that tenacity and that curiosity that is needed and I think is essential actually to science. And so I wanted to have a very open conversation with her about that. And then obviously about Bigfoot, because as someone who is a primatologist who travels the world, she too has had a lot of people approach her and, and, and talk about sightings. And these are people that she really trusts. So she is as open-minded as not, not more than open-minded. I mean, she, she wants it to be true. She truly believes that this possibility um, is out there and her words really stayed with me throughout that entire expedition because yeah, in many ways it, it does validate what we're doing out there. I faced a lot of criticism from, from other scientists and colleagues who, you know, think of oh, why, why are you going out there searching for this? Obviously it doesn't exist because it hasn't been found. And to hear from somebody like Jane, who is still in that, that, that wonder, the curiosity, and in that pursuit of discovery say to you, this is completely worthwhile. And more than that, an important thing to do, because I believe there's something out there. You better believe I heard her every step of the way. Yeah. Anyone else want to weigh in on? And, and thank you. That, that that was that was a great response. And I'm curious if anyone else wants to weigh in on that as well. Yeah. yeah I mean, for for me, and I, I think just for the Bigfoot community, it, it kind of swings that door wide open in the sense that to have, like you said, Aaron, a giant like Dr. Jane Goodall, to even entertain the idea to to you know be a part of it, and what she reveals is is really. Um, kind of gets you pumped in the sense that you feel like you're on the right path and you have someone that's kind of saying, continue to do what you're doing. But I think it just opens up the door to uh, a wider uh, audience of people, drive some more awareness around what we're trying to do and what the reality is out there that we're trying to bring forth. Um, so that's what's exciting about it. Yeah, I just want to I just want to add too. I mean, I think Jane Goodall does for Bigfoot what our military fighter pilots do for the UFO phenomenon. You know, they take away some of this taboo nature that surrounds the subject. When people see somebody like Jane Goodall speaking on the subject matter of Bigfoot, you know, uh, it becomes a little less silly and a little bit more serious. I mean, this is somebody uh, who we can take her words and and we can and we can run with them and. Uh, and, you know, I, I'd like to see that for this for this field of subject that, you know, people are going to be more open to it. They're not going to be uh, so quick to, you know, um, just dismiss it outright. And I think that's what Jane Goodall does for us uh, as well as Bigfoot in general. Yeah, I mean, I was actually going to ask, how does Bigfoot have sort of his UFO moment, New York Times 2017 and then and then last year moment? I my my fear my fear is that the way we have that moment is that we have a corpse and it's or a some a, a sasquatch that's been killed by some some you know hunter that that that's the th the part that scares me 
it disappoints me and frightens me. I'd rather have a live uh, specimen. Yeah. If I'm honest, and it's not, look, it's not out of the realm of possibility. We honestly, like discoveries are happening all the time, all over the world, including new species of primates. And they are in fact live specimens, right? So, and in fact, I fought very hard when we did our, made our discovery in Madagascar to keep that specimen alive because I didn't want just something sitting in a museum drawer. So I think it's come a long way. I don't think you need the dead body anymore, but you definitely need, which is why we're out there working so hard, is is that irrefutable evidence. Yeah. Uh, Russ, in the premiere, you talk about, in, in a previous episode, your equipment glitched a little bit while you were out in the field. And you talked, I, I, I think it was your, your equipment, Russ, that glitched. And then in the premiere, you talk a little bit about potential uh, electromagnetic disturbance and maybe animals picking up on that kind of thing when you create a blind. Can you talk a little bit about that some more in the decision to use certain kind of shielding when you're creating a blind? You're giving away all our first episodes. <laughs> it's this um, is teasing it. People will still show up and watch. Don't worry. Think about, think yes, about how many stories word. you've heard. What's that? Uh, think about how many stories you've heard where people have issues with their equipment. And in the field, I think all of us have experienced certain things where the the battery that usually lasts eight hours only lasts for about forty five minutes at best. Mm. or several pieces of equipment will die all at the same time. So it's kind of hard to ignore those kinds of things that happen. And maybe it's just you're like, like a compass will point to, to north. There's got to be places on the planet that, that will definitely take energy from whatever you have in your hands if it's battery operated. That seems more logical to me. But when you start hearing a lot of stories about people that lose um, equipment or equipment failure, batteries that die quick, that sort of thing, that the whole idea of shielding that to try to protect your, your, basically your bubble of where you're working at was, um, that was the whole idea to try to protect that equipment, see if Mm -hmm. there was anything tangible to, to, you know, that whole sapping the energy out of your equipment. Oh, Ronnie, I'll throw it to you. Do you, this notion of and, and it's not necessarily something that you're promoting on Expedition Bigfoot, but there are these these theorists out there that kind of go in the more, quote-unquote, woo-woo territory of, of Bigfoot that this is less of a undiscovered uh, or, or remained uh, hidden creature as opposed to something that's a little bit more interdimensional or perhaps possessing some sort of uh, supernatural-like powers. What do you think? about this whole EM disturbance kind of notion. Is that too woo-woo for you, you? No, I mean, it, I kind of swim right in the woo. Uh, <laughs> um, and it's just something that I wouldn't be so pro on it if I didn't experience it for myself and continue to experience it. And doing these expeditions, it just becomes more and more apparent to me that there's something stranger going on with Sasquatch and big, you know, Bigfoot than, than we, I think, want to admit sometimes until you keep on having these situations where they're just head scratchers uh, and you have more questions than you do answers. And so it's exciting because it, it kind of goes along where 
I feel like they are uh, having some capabilities that we just don't understand yet. And um, there's just been some strange things that just don't really add up. Uh, and I always look at uh, researchers that have been doing this for 40, 50 years that started off, you know, flesh and blood animal. And at the end of it, they're just kind of, there's something else going on here. And there's still, it just like UFOs, like that mystery continues to um, snowball and we're trying to catch up to it, but it continues to get bigger and bigger as we try to unravel it. Mm-hmm. Bryce. Well, so, so my background is as a journalist is to work as a journalist, even though I now pursue this weirdness and I've interviewed a lot of people about everything from crimes to movies, entertainment, and then the paranormal and talking to people, you develop a sense of a pretty finely tuned bullshit meter, but also sense of empathy, trying to pick up on the people that the, the truth of their story. So Bryce, with you, when you're interviewing some of these eyewitnesses, and I think all of you can weigh on this as well, how, how, how do you personally determine whether this is a good eyewitness account? How do you kind of suss out the ones that you think, okay, I, I, I think maybe they're really, they're, they're sharing their truth here? Yeah, totally. Well, uh, along with just a gut feeling, I mean, you know, with a lot of these witnesses, you really sort of have to twist their arm to come on and and tell about their encounter because there's not a lot to be gained. There's not a lot of financial gain. Uh, You know, as a matter of fact, a lot of these witnesses have a lot to lose by coming forward, Um, being ridiculed in their job space or by their peers, friends and family. I mean, you know, this is something that not a lot of these people really want to discuss. And And the ones that I've spoken with who are really having a visceral reaction, kind of retelling this encounter that they had, you can tell that they're experiencing something real and and visceral, almost in a sense of some type of post-traumatic stress. They experienced something. They saw something. And, uh, you know, speaking with these witnesses is an incredible, valuable tool at gaining information as to just what's going on. Does anyone else want to weigh on that? I mean, Russ, I think you would actually have an interesting perspective as well, because being a retired army sergeant, you're dealing, you've dealt with a lot of people that are, the job is to be sober minded and and clear focused. And then you have sort of this askew approach to things. When you talk to people, what's, what's your metric for whether or not they're full of it or telling something potentially true there? So some of the training that I got to go through was interviewing and interrogation. And one of the things I really enjoy watching someone tell a story to another person as a, as just kind of a third party watching from the side is body language. Your eyes will say a lot. If you look up to the right, up to the left, if you fold your arms, if you close yourself off, if you don't even believe your own BS, it's going to come across Mm. and you're trying to sell. You're almost like stepping through these words and navigating to see if the person in front of you believes it, which will actually help you confirm your own story. Right. But people that have actually, like Bryce was talking about, have actually been impacted by something. It flows freely and there's there's no hesitation and it, it does impact them. And you can tell that even their body language and that, that relief of actually getting those words out and, and saying it, mm-hmm. um, you see a lot with that. I've, I've met quite a few that 
it's it only takes me a few words into a conversation to think okay i need to i just need to hear this out and let him finish and walk away from this with nothing gained nothing lost but then there's some that that i've heard s- stories where you know this person actually went through something traumatic something really really heavy and their interpretation and how that all kind of blends in it could have been a bear it could have been something different but you have to you have to just kind of filter through all the stories regardless yeah uh ronnie maria do you want to add to any of that have anything to say yeah i mean for for me like the witnesses are kind of that that's where you you're going to get these those key pieces of information that nobody else will know and and that's one of the things i kind of pay attention for where uh there's just certain things that are red flags obviously and there's other other things that they couldn't possibly know it unless they've experienced it themselves and if you don't give them too much stuff uh they'll start revealing certain things and and, and like bryce said a lot of times the ones that are so hesitant to reveal it and they're kind of just back and forth you can see that they're struggling with it um compared to someone that just willing to you know uh, rooftop and share it out you get a measure that because sometimes the, they're trying to push some bs or they really have a story that they don't want to tell anybody uh, because it, it is damaging. So witnesses to me have always played a really important role on expeditions. Um, I've really every primate that I've ever chosen to look for in, in the wilds are primates that are either critically endangered, um, rare, elusive, never been studied or never been photographed, right? So this sort of search isn't really new to me in that sense and witnesses and their accounts uh, have been invaluable in the field to me in searching for these animals and even in those situations uh, you do have to read sort of body languages and even like in some cultures like people will just say yes to be polite but they haven't really seen the animals in in years or, or ever right so it's about reading all of this but a lot of the witnesses that have reached out to me via like social media or, and, and stuff. Um, I mean, one one or two people in particular said, you know, I've never, I've been holding this in for over 30 years. I've never even shared uh, this story with, you know, my my, my wife of, of 30 years. Like I, I, I'm embarrassed. I don't want to be ridiculed. And then as they tell the story by the end of it, like you get the sense of relief that it's like, I got it out there. So mm-hmm. I agree with, you know, with Bryce, so many witnesses that come forward have so much more to lose than to gain that I think you can't dismiss it and you have to listen to it and and take it into account every step of the way. And I think that goes back to the whole, uh, it goes back to the Jane Goodall interview too. I mean, she recounts having, listening to people and talking to them and asking, have you seen something like this Mm -hmm. and getting these responses. And I think that that's really, it's really powerful. Uh, wrapping up, I will say, so Trish801 in our comments said, do you spend the entire season three in the Pacific Northwest? I'm going to expand that question and just say, I'd like you to answer that. But also, as we wind down, tease the rest of season three. What can we look forward to? What are you, each of you most excited for viewers to see this season? So I'll go, I'm going to start from my uh, the bottom here, Russ, go. <laughs> Too many things to count. A lot of daylight stuff, a lot of nighttime stuff, things that go unexplained. 
I think the viewer is going to be just blown away. Ronnie. Uh, for me, one of the theories out there is can Bigfoot cloak? You hear these different stories. And I think we experienced something that uh, for me kind of leans on that because I don't have another explanation for it. Uh, and I'm excited for people to, to experience it. Okay. Mariah. I was really impressed that we were able to get back to this spot, not really knowing what we were going to find, if we were going to get back on the heels of whatever it is that we were tracking the previous expedition and was truly blown away by what happened next. I mean, it was like so much more than I could have ever anticipated. And some of the stuff that I experienced has really sort of changed even my way of perceiving what it is that we're what's happening out there. Okay, Bryce. Well, to answer Trisha's question, she's just going to have to tune in to find out. Uh, I can't much say much more than that, but I will tell you this. This was one of our most active expeditions uh, that we've ever been on. I mean, we captured just about everything that you could want. Thermals, vocalizations, uh, audio recordings, you name Don't it. Give it, and, all uh, Don't give it all away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I, I will just say it's a it's a jam-packed expedition. We encounter so much activity. And, you know, when you really start to put together these individualistic pieces of evidence, it creates a very compelling composite picture that Bigfoot is real. All right. Well, right there. Well, we have season three of Expedition Bigfoot. It's returning March 20th. And it will premiere on Travel Channel at 9 p.m. And we have same-day premiere on Discovery+. Plus, and the season kicks off with a new evidence pre-show. And I will just say, tomorrow, I'll be back. I'm going to be back here at 4 p.m. ET, 1 p.m. Pacific time. Joined by Deborah Ann Wall and Kristen Bauer, host of the True Blood podcast, Truest Blood. Thank you for joining. Don't forget to subscribe. Download each week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can watch the video interviews at youtube.com slash US. And give me a follow on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, and Talking Strange Pod on Twitter. Until next time, let me thank my guests, uh, Bryce, Maria, Ronnie, Russ. Thank you each for joining me. I'm super excited to see more of Expedition Bigfoot already what I have seen. It is just an incredibly uh, interesting and fun uh, show. So I'm looking forward to seeing more. So thank you guys each for joining. And until next time, all of you out there, be kind, stay spooky, and keep it weird. Weird.